0: This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello, and welcome to the Spectator podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, Theresa May is putting the final touches to her Brexit deal, but is this a point to celebrate, or has she left behind an irrevocably toxic legacy? We also take a look at the Democratic Party's new darling, Beto O'Rourke. And last, are British parents too obsessed with their children's education? First, what is the legacy that Theresa May, the seemingly unassailable Prime Minister, will leave? She might have overcome another Tory rebellion, but the divisions she leaves within the Conservative Party will be felt for many years to come. James Forsyth argues in this week's cover piece that she has exacerbated divisions between Scottish Tories and others, between Remainers and Brexiteers, and what's more, she has not taken back sovereignty in her Brexit deal, ensuring that Europe will continue to dominate the Tories. James joins me now, together with Lord Michael Heseltine, former Deputy Prime Minister. So James, you say in your piece that May's legacy is going to be toxic in more than one way. What do you see as being the three problems that she's going to leave?
1: Well, I think the first one is that the withdrawal agreement essentially requires the UK to make a choice between sovereignty and the union. If the UK chooses to take more control over its own rules and regulations, it will give teeth to a regulatory border in the Irish Sea, putting Northern Ireland into a very different place. And so essentially what the withdrawal agreement will do is under the backstop there'll be this constant tension in the Tory party between do you want more sovereignty for Great Britain or do you value the union more so you're prepared to carry on following more EU rules and regulations to keep the, the whole of the UK under the same economic system broadly. I think the second problem is that Theresa May hasn't been straight with people particularly her own party you know there is an argument that after a general election result it was obvious that Brexit was going to be very different from what she had initially said it would be but she's never actually said to her party well hang on a second because of the parliamentary arithmetic now the idea that we can leave the customs union all this stuff it's not going to happen so let's retrench let let's think differently I, I mean I, that is a problem and then I think the third thing is that Theresa May has concluded when you look at this the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration that essentially that all people care about is ending free movement when i think if you actually look at the kind of history of tory euroscepticism it's not really been about free movement it's been about a whole host of other issues and in a way Theresa may by 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 saying oh, right, free movement is the one thing she she hasn't actually dealt with a lot of what a lot of other people's concerns on other aspects of sovereignty.
0: Lord Hazeltine, do you agree that Theresa May has misread what her party, what the Conservative movement more widely actually wants from
2: Brexit? I think that the movement more widely is very difficult to define. I don't think there's any clear understanding of why people voted for Brexit. And that is every day more evident as the Brexit that is on offer satisfies fewer and fewer people. They were sold a pup. They were made promises which were unreal and there were bribes which they fell for. So the dilemma now, I think, is how do you test public opinion? How do you find out what people actually think about the sort of deal that's on offer? I think James made a fair point that Theresa May has not been straight with them. She's trying to, to find a sort of way of half convincing, of half wriggling through, of botching the outcome, de- kicking it down the road until after we've actually left. It's, it's a very dishonest process.
0: And do you think, Lord Heseltine, that the Conservative Party has been more divided than it is at the moment? Or is this the worst you've seen it?
2: I think the scale is worse. It all began in the early 80s when the phrase not one of us became current. I didn't really appreciate how deep the divide was becoming until I went back to the backbenches in uh, 1986. Uh, and it, it really struck me that... The party in the Commons was deeply divided. It was fighting elections for committees on a sort of a, a, a ticket basis. You know, if you belong to the One of Us group, then you got elected, and if you didn't, you didn't get elected. So all of that began in the early 1980s, but it is worse now because the numbers are bigger.
0: James, how can... Another leader, or perhaps even Theresa May, heal these divisions. Is it impossible for Theresa May to do so?
1: I think it is very difficult to heal these divisions, but because as long as the backstop is in operation, there will be this constant choice to make, you know, and it, it, and that will divide. That will fast become a new fault line in Tory politics. There will be lots of Tory MPs for English seats who say, look. I'd rather have, you know, greater freedom over the economy, even if that means some separation from Northern Ireland. But then remember that the Scottish Tory MPs are generally Unionists first and Conservatives second. And so they would be very opposed to anything like that. I mean, I think you will see this. I remember at the time of uh, when the joint report first came out in December. Do you remember those few days when Theresa May... Because of DUP's objections, Theresa May wasn't signing it. And in those days, the kind of cabinet ministers had these intense discussions about, you know, private discussions about what to do. And in one of those discussions, someone who may well succeed, Theresa May, was of the idea of, look, you know, if the choice is between the economic benefits of Brexit for Great Britain and giving Northern Ireland some special status, let's let us keep the economic benefits of Brexit for Great Britain. And let's accept that Northern Ireland is is different. And this person's argument was, but we already recognise from the Anglo-Irish agreement to the Good Friday agreement, (laughs) but Northern Ireland is different in various ways. So I think this is, that argument is going to tear at the Tory party. It's going to become a kind of new kind of constant prod, which I think will make things very difficult as long as the backstop is there. Do you agree with that, Lord Heseltine?
2: I think that the backstop and the sort of compromises that are coming out of the deal uh, have this very fundamental point, and I think I rather agree with James, that we're neither in nor out. And my preoccupation from the very beginning has been that the argument about sovereignty and power is very confused. In this day and age, the idea that Britain is going to be somehow a different part of the world to the rest of Europe and gain from it is to me inconceivable. I heard James use the words about the advantages of Brexit, economic advantages. There are no advantages. It will, we will permanently be the poor relation relatively to Europe. You can see it now in the latest figures from the OECD today that we are going to be one of the slower-growing European countries, whereas within Europe, a year or two ago, we were the fastest. So it's a delusion to think that there are economic advantages. But the issue is to what extent you are more powerful if you share power if you share sovereignty, to put yourself into a bigger economic league. That's the basic issue, and I believe that it is inconceivable to me that Britain should voluntarily step down from the top table of European politics and allow others to make the rules and tell us what we have to do. That's where we're heading, and I don't approve of that.
0: James, when Theresa May gave her statement in Downing Street this week about the political declaration. She said the British people want this to be settled, but it sounds very much from your piece as though the Conservative Party is going to be banging on about Europe for decades to come.
1: Yeah, I think if you look at the political declaration that's come out this morning, it, it already says that every six months on, the UK and the EU will, will sit down to talk about this. I, I think this debate about how Britain interacts with the EU will go on for the rest of all of our working lifetimes. I think there is, there is, there is a fundamental moment, though, which I would take to, to kind of go back in history, which is from the moment the UK decided not to join the single currency, the kind of debate we are having now became inevitable. I think the Roy Jenkins argument that Britain either has to be fully in or fully out is actually true. And I don't think there's any... I think it would be impossible to persuade the British public to be fully in in terms of joining the euro being eventually part of a federal political entity of the United States of Europe, if you like. And for that reason, that is why you end up with this choice, which is what do you want to do? How do you want to handle this relationship? Are there benefits to being a more nimble power off the coast of Europe if we're not going to go the whole hog and join the whole, a full European state?
0: Lord Heseltine, who do you think should take over as Conservative leader and what would they need to do to to end the divisions in the party, or is that simply impossible?
2: I think it's not conceivable at the moment, and uh, I have said for many, many a long month, there's no point in uh, changing the singer unless you change the song. Uh, I have to accept that the song I would like to, uh, to sing would be divisive in the same way as the present situation is divisive. Mrs May's single greatest strength is that no one can agree about who to put in her place.
0: And you're an advocate for a second referendum. Would that not increase divisions, not just in the Conservative Party, but also in the country more widely?
2: The divisions are there, so they wouldn't become wider. They are there. But what I think would happen with a second referendum is that Remain would win for very obvious reasons. And that would mean that our economic position would be stronger. But if you say to me, will the argument be resolved? No, I think that it wouldn't. There will still be those who want to pursue some delusion of independence.
0: James, what are the chances of a second referendum happening? And do you agree with Lord Heseltine that the divisions are already there, so it's not going to make much difference?
1: I think the divisions might already be there. But The next referendum campaign would calcify those divisions and the the campaign itself would be even more divisive than last time round because the Leave side of our argument would run constantly on the establishment won't respect you. You know, you are being looked down on all that stuff. It, It would be a divisive campaign for that reason. I think, oddly enough, the chance of a second referendum have receded a little bit at the moment simply because there is a deal. A referendum's work when it's a binary proposition. And if the UK government and the European Commission had not been able to reach an agreement, you could have said, look, the choice is between no deal and remain. While as now there are three options on the table, there is no deal, there is Mrs May's deal or there is remain. And for that reason, I think that you don't have the kind of the the, the stark, simple choice that referendums deal with best.
2: Well, you have left out the obvious alternative that if the House of Commons votes down the deal, which it almost certainly will, then you don't have three choices. You have two.
1: I think that Theresa May's view would be that, you know, the government would have to bring in legislation for the referendum and her view would be that her deal, which she would argue, you know, respects the referendum result, deserves to be on the ballot paper. I, I, find it, I find it hard to believe that in a circumstance where the government, the referendum would have to be brought forward by the government, but Theresa May, who is so committed to this deal, wouldn't want to put her deal on the ballot paper.
0: Thank you, Lord Heseltine. Thanks, James.
3: Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast, at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store.
4: Across
0: the pond, the future of the Democratic Party looks brighter than the Conservatives. Or does it? Many in the party pinned presidential hopes on Texan congressman Beto O'Rourke, who some have called a white Obama. But Freddie Gray writes in this week's magazine that Beto is all talk and little substance. And what's more, Beto's popularity is symptomatic of a Democratic party that is increasingly desperate in its search for someone to defeat Trump. Freddie joins me now, together with Karen Robinson, former vice chair of Democrats Abroad UK. So Freddie... Who is Beto O'Rourke and why is America talking about him?
5: Beto O'Rourke is a congressman from Texas who's sort of good-looking, charismatic, very energetic, ran a, I, you could say, successful campaign that ultimately failed against Ted Cruz in Texas. But despite losing, there is now a lot of hype around him as the candidate, presidential candidate who will take on Donald Trump in 2020. Beto has said he's not going to run, but candidates always say that. And the fact is there's so much hype around him, it might be hard for him to stop himself from running. He's clearly an ambitious man. But what I find so interesting is that even though really all he's chalked up to his name is one energetic campaign that didn't win, he's being spoken of as a sort of saviour. And I think this speaks to a bigger crisis in the Democratic Party.
0: Karen, you're a Democrat in London. Do you feel inspired by Beto O'Rourke? Freddie's piece does suggest that there's a sort of whiff of desperation about the Democrats at the moment.
6: Yeah. So first of all, I should say I'm not here to be a Beto supporter. I haven't picked a candidate yet. I'm Our primary hasn't even started. It hasn't even begun to begin. Mm. So I'm not here saying Beto is the, the best candidate. But I am here to say that Beto O'Rourke is attracting a lot of interest from Democrats across the US because he ran a very good campaign in Texas. And because Because his message was very much the kind of message that Democrats in particular want to hear right now. And and I would argue a lot of independents want to hear as well, which is we can come together. We can come back and restore this notion of every voice has value. He went out during his campaign and he spoke to, he went to and visited every county in Texas. And I think this notion of we can all come together, we can find ways of working together, and then standing up kind of confidently for progressive values in a way that is appealing across the the board. So for example, you know, he was very confident about saying things like, for example, he supported the football players who had protested against police brutality, but he did it in a way that I think many people found appealing and it wasn't kind of, you're right, I'm wrong. It was kind of very inclusive and welcoming. So I think that, that was one thing that people quite liked about him. And he ran a presidential style campaign in Texas. And so if you see it as a kind of road test for how this would work, I think he raised a lot of money, he brought a lot of big coalition together, and he outperformed his polls in Texas, even though he ultimately lost the race. He did better than he was polled to do, and he was polled to do better than any Democrat has done in Texas for a long, long time. Freddie, does he also have a policy underpinning?
0: He sounds like he's very... Good or at least very attention-grabbing with the sort of the big stances, but in terms of what he stands for, well, does that I, even as
5: matter? I, as I say, he 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 ticks all the right progressive boxes. You know, cannabis legalization, abortion, higher taxes, but at the same time nothing that would upset sort of the Clinton family, apart from the fact that he might be a threat to the Clinton family, nothing that would upset, upset sort of establishment democratic values. Is that a problem then? I think it is a bit because the Democrats, as 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 I'm sure listeners will have noticed, are having this similar drift to the left, some would call it the extreme left, that the Labour Party's had. And it's a similar dynamic going on where you've got these sort of young, exciting MPs who have a lot of grassroots support, but a sort of uncomfortable to mainstream America. And so there's a sort of danger that the Democrat Party is going to tear itself apart. We're seeing this at the moment over the speakership of Nancy Pelosi. And I think Beto or Beto is an attractive figure to establishment America because he's kind of cool and hip and he has a bit of buzz about him, but he's not really a threat in the way that, let's say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a new congressman from New York, a similarly attractive figure, is. She's far more socialist, authentically socialist.
6: Do you agree with that, Karen? She's also legally prohibited from running for the presidency because she's not old enough yet, which I think is I brilliant. I didn't say she was going to run for No, I just yeah. I think it's hilarious. There is like this kind of little undercurrent of progressive saying, oh, Alexandria, well, she's literally not old enough. So I think there's some truth in that, actually, in that, as I was saying, I think Beto is an example. And I would say there are many figures in the Democratic Party who will probably run for president. I expect we will have a very busy and populated primary process this this cycle which I think is a good thing actually there are arguments we need to have and discussions we need to have as a party between not just the different factions but almost the kind of different styles of presenting those factions You know, do you want to be an assertive kind of pro-socialist like a Bernie Sanders type thing do you want to be kind of perhaps with some similar policy things but do you want to be more intellectual like Elizabeth Warren do you want to be more prosecutorial like Kamala Harris and I think there are debates we need to have about that but in presidential policy it often works quite well if you have someone who is able to put across your party's position in a way that is broadly appealing. And ironically, actually having lost the election might be the best thing for him in terms of giving him a platform to run for if he decides to do that. Because it is he doesn't now have a job that he would have to be proving himself in. He, his job would then be running for president. Is he going to do that? I don't know. But I will say that if he runs, I think people will be watching him with great interest. I don't want that competition to close too quickly. I actually would really like us this time around to see a really robust debate between all these different people and actually I mean the president a presidential primary is a bit like running a marathon at a dead sprint right so if he has the kind of skill and chops that people think he has that will come out in the process we will find that out and similarly other candidates who might be overlooked right now might equally you you know as the race goes on you might start to sit up and go okay that's somebody we'd overlooked I mean Amy Klobuchar for example in in Minnesota is a really interesting candidate who nobody's really paying any attention to she might run if she does I think we'll see what happens tell us a bit more about her so she's a Northern Midwestern Democratic senator. She won her re-election uh, this year by a, a, a significant margin, more more so than the other. There were two two Senate elections in Minnesota this year. She won by a significantly improved margin over over even the other Democrat who was running. And I think she's a she's a good example of you know she's definitely a progressive, but she's a sort of Midwestern pragmatic pragmatic progressive. And I think in a way that's appealing to a lot of people. She's also she comes across as nice, you know, just comes across as a pleasant person that you'd want to spend time with Uh, and I think as a contrast to Trump a lot of people are looking for someone who can command a different space not just an argument but somebody who can actually look different and present themselves differently than how Donald Trump does.
5: Now in terms of that contrast with Donald Trump
0: Freddie what do the Republicans make of O'Rourke?
5: Well I I think the Republicans secretly actually quite like the idea of him because the, the great threat for the Republicans is not really some amazingly sort of trendy exciting figure it's that it's a Democratic candidate who can peel back a lot of blue collar voters in important states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and I think someone like O'Rourke he may be able to do that but a more midwestern figure something like that who would uh, with sort of broad you know Joe Biden is obviously the old war horse he would have this kind of blue collar appeal which is really how the democrats beat Trump I think so I think the Republicans secretly are quite... I mean, I noticed a lot of the Ted Cruz people were saying afterwards, oh, I pity anyone that has to run against Beto O'Rourke in 2020, which is a sure sign that actually they're thinking we could beat him in 2020. I think he's the sort of figure that the Republicans would fancy their chances against because he is hype and bubble, and there may be a lot less to him than there seems to be.
0: And Karen, Freddie's piece does paint the Democratic Party as being not in great shape at the moment. Do you accept that? Do you think there are changes that need to be made or is it a little bit too late because these things are always about a slow burn of building strength for a party. Well just just
6: just to reality check slightly we just won a midterm election by more votes than Democrats have ever had in any midterm election ever. You know, we won by about 8% and it's still climbing. We haven't finished counting all the votes in California. So I think Democrats right now are in a good place. The strategy that we used during this midterm is actually quite telling because what we tried to do is get people to stop talking about Donald Trump for 5 minutes. Because like a more lovely him and believe me, like him or loathe him, believe me, we, we have very, very strong feelings about Donald Trump being a, a danger to, to the Republic effectively. He sucks up all the attention, and it has been very hard for Democrats to get out there and get our message out there and change the conversation to the issues that we care about. We're always arguing about whether it is or isn't right to lock children up. Well, obviously, it's not. And, and so we get just sidetracked into these conversations. During the midterm, we focused laser leg on health care. We were very, very disciplined, and I think that worked really. Really well for us in the midterm. For a presidential election, it's no longer a local election. So you can't just focus on kind of what works in each region and what state. And it's also not a referendum just on Donald Trump. It's a choice between two candidates. So we need a second candidate who can command the same kind of attention from the media and from the voters' minds as a Donald Trump does in a negative way, in a positive way. So I think that's what we'll be looking for. I think that is probably the source of a lot of this Beto rock enthusiasm. I'm just saying at this point, I think he could play a lot of that role. And let's see how that plays out. I think there are other candidates who could also help us step into that space in some different ways. I'm looking forward to finding out what that looks like. Freddie, is it actually impossible to beat Trump?
5: No, I think it's very possible to beat Trump, particularly if the economy doesn't keep booming. I think the Democrats have a very good chance of, of beating Trump. But I, I suppose my what I think where the Democrats go wrong is that they are always looking for the beautiful story when they don't necessarily need one and they're looking for actually a beautiful person you know it's the 55th anniversary today of JFK dying and and sort of since then really the Democrats have always had this kind of Camelot myth the sort of hero figure who can unite the country bring heal the wounds of America you know Obama was that Clinton was that and I think I, I just think it's it's it smacks of desperation particularly at the moment where what they really need to do is to kind of heal the wounds of the party and when they're talking about Beto as a unifying figure I think maybe what they really mean is oh maybe he can patch together our party again.
6: Well, I mean, all political parties are made up of coalitions of disparate interests that don't always align themselves, right? So, And that's not true just of Democrats, it's true of Republicans too. And yes,
5: but also I'd say all established parties in the West are yeah. falling apart and the Democrats uh, are having that
6: too. 100%. We have a crisis of democracy right now, and that is, I think that's that's one of the things that you're seeing play out in the psychology of Democrats, right? Because we see the stakes of this election as so fundamental, so foundational. We we, we, we fear that the kind of liberal democratic order and the established of principles of en- of enlightenment democratic policy democratic with a small d policy are potentially so threatened that our choice of candidate feels quite epic feels quite monumental which is why again i come back to saying i think it's actually a good thing that we have an extended process that we really road test our candidates see what they have to say how they confront some of these challenges but i also think it's a good thing that democrats are taking very seriously this part this question and then that, that we are looking for a candidate who can represent the values of liberal democracy and liberalism in a really compelling way that relates to voters that we may have lost in the previous election and need to win back. I think a lot of people voted for Donald Trump in 2016, not because they particularly liked him, but because they didn't see an alternative. We need to be a very compelling alternative.
5: And he can actually run, as in He can literally run. He (laughs) can literally run
6: all day as, as he tells people as he tells his people videos. far too much and he yeah. can sing he was in a rock band so you know he can run
5: he can sing he can <laughs> he's
6: a one-man lead band. the free world
0: <laughs> thanks karen and freddie looking for a new podcast to add to the mix then why not join me katie balls for women with balls the spectators latest podcast series In it, I'll be sitting down with the trailblazers of today to talk about their career goals and what makes them tick. So far, we've had Emma Barnett, and that's now available. Later this month, I'll be speaking to Liz Truss, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, as well as a host of other names. I do hope you'll join me. And you can find us on Spectator Radio. And last, Leah McLaren writes in this week's magazine about the British obsession with education. Parents' paranoia about where their children will go to school is all about status anxiety, she argues. In her area of North London, taking a blasé attitude to your child's school choice is seen as tantamount to child neglect. So how much does a parent's choice of school affect a child's life chances? We talked to Leah and James Dellingpole about this peculiarly British phenomenon. So Leah, you complain in your piece about pushy parents who make ridiculous sacrifices to send their children to private school. Just give us some of those examples. This isn't just about paying the fees. This is about before you actually get there, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's and it's just to be clear, it's not only private school, like it's just that level of anxiety about good schools, whatever your concept of a good school might be. And for a lot of middle class people, in london that is private i've known mothers it's always mothers interestingly never fathers who's will take time off work extended sabbaticals to try and support their kids through the 11 plus i've known also women always women who tour tour multiple multiple schools and i'm not just talking about checking out three or four different schools but like dozens of schools over a two-year period, meeting with head teachers, researching the decision in a way that almost becomes a kind of part-time job, not going away for summer holidays because it's like full-time tutor time because the 11 plus is coming up in six months, um, stuff like that. But also the thing that just began to just grate and wear me down as a Canadian living in London was just the Dinner party chat. Like, I started going to dinner parties and wanting to put a sign on saying, I will talk about Brexit, I'll talk about, you know, I'll talk about property prices. I will not talk about where your kids are going to school. I'm just not, I'm no longer interested. It's just boring. Um, you have kids. Yeah, I do. I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old, and I also have a ten-year-old stepson. And you have none of this anxiety about whether they go to a good school. Well, you know or what? A I, terrible school. I did a little bit. So my stepson is ten, and he went to a very expensive private school in Notting Hill. And which is not far from we, where we live, just in Queens Park, just north of there. And at first, that was my first experience with schooling. It's it's a perfectly nice school in many ways, and the parents were nice, and I made mum friends. And I did have a bit of anxiety before my son went to school, and. You know, my husband and I discussed it and he said, no, no, we'll just send them around the corner. It's a good school. It's an ARC academy. It's, you know, rated blah, blah, Ofsted has a perfectly solid rating. And once I did send them to that school around the corner, I realized, of course, it was like my upbringing in Canada where you just never thought about it. You sent your kids to the local school unless you were very rich or very religious. And then there are other options. So it's not like, you know, France or something where it's like illegal. And I suddenly realized all of my anxiety just evaporated. I realized that London, and I'm talking about the middle class London and upper middle class London, is a place where parental anxiety about education is just, seems sort of weirdly inbuilt into the culture. And it has, I don't, I'm sure James will have insights into why this is. It's quite extraordinary. And often kind of
0: boring. James, are you this anxious, boring parent that Leah describes?
3: Well, I, 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 I balk at this word boring. But, <laughs> but, but I have to say Leah's analysis is absolutely bang on. I, I, I'm i very much the kind of person that she describes in, in her, her excellent article. I've ruined my health. I've ruined myself financially, putting my children through the the private system. And I have absolutely zero regrets. And before that, by the way, I did the other thing that Leah talks about, which is that I did go to church a lot in order to get my children into a Church of England primary school. And the irony of that is that the school i actually got the kids into which, and this is another point that Leah makes one of the, one of the one of the great shibboleths of people who have middle class parents who send their children to state schools is they always cover themselves by saying <laughs> what a marvelous oh, oh, it's so good it's it, it, it it's really you know it's amazing what you can get uh, even though it's free absolute rubbish all the, all, all these highly rated school, uh, state schools in london are absolute pants. But why do you put, your, put yourself through all this stuff? It's simply, well, for several reasons. First of all, as again, Leah rightly says, it's about class. It's about finding a place in the right, in, in, in the pecking order, making sure that your children have a better chance of marrying well, of, of of having sort of future future business partners and so on who are going to make them rich. So it's partly that. Partly it's a cultural thing as well. We I was always afraid of having children who were so kind of so thick, so so uncultured that I wouldn't be able to have conversations with them about art and literature. And one of the great advantages of, of my children's posh, expensive education is that I can talk about talk to them about this stuff.
0: Leah, James does make a point here about the quality of education in some schools that it isn't the same as in some private schools. And do you think you're dismissing parents who? are quite rightly just wanting the best start for their children?
4: Well, I don't think the research bears that out, at least certainly not in London. You know, I'm not an educational expert, but I did look into it enough to see that London State School primary level children test much better than the national average. And so that was sort of enough for me. But also, I on an anecdotal level, I have one stepson at a very elite, expensive prep school in London, one of the most expensive. And then I have another son at another at a sort of a, it's an ARC academy up the road. And I can absolutely attest to the fact that the ARC academy in this case, and I know this is anecdotally just, you know, a small sample group, is just, it's just better. He's just a head it's more academic, the teaching is better. And I know that also because I know several parents in that postcode who pulled their kids out of that particular private school, and they've been behind when they've gone into this Arc Academy. Now, this particular academy, and there are many of them in London, is meant to change outcomes. So it's turned the school around in a period of about five years. And it is, you know, it's if what you want really is educational magic, it doesn't take a genius to figure it out. It's not about looking at averages. Obviously, prep schools and posh schools always have higher average scores, because the major key determining factor in terms of educational achievement is class is social background is what kind of house you grew up in how many books there are. So that will always be true. But if you really are looking at to send your kids to a good school, what you should probably do is look at the number of kids in that school, assuming it's a state school, on free school lunches or in the breakfast program, then look at the test scores. And if they're high, in that gap is educational magic, because really good education is about changing outcomes, actually taking kids who would be thick and showing them art and culture, not just about your kids, James, who I think Even if you'd sent them to the school around the corner, you'd probably still be able to take them to the National Gallery. (laughs) Yes, because James, surely it is
0: about your parental input. That's what makes the biggest difference, actually. The fact that you'll be hovering over them as they're doing their homework. You'll be taking them to, I don't know, the Royal Opera House or wherever you need to take them so that they're exposed to the culture that you can then talk to them about that, that you know.
3: Yes, this is certainly true. Liam makes another good point. Some of the nicest kids I know are Michael Gove's children. They are incredibly <laughs> bright, sparky, and they have been educated throughout at state schools. And despite what I said earlier, I know that I know that there are certainly. I mean, Toby Young's uh, um, academy schools that he set up, Catherine Burble Singh's school, Michaela Community School. These are shining beacons of education and I'm I'm quite sure that you would get as rigorous an education at some of those schools as you would at most of the better private schools. And yeah, definitely parents do make a big difference. And yes, probably you're right, Leah, my kids would nearly be as... nearly... But, but nearly nearly is not enough and also don't forget you are a foreigner I, I mean, you're, you're, you're oh, not I, assimilated I, and you never will be assimilated you will never understand the nuances of the English class. well, well.
4: I do understand and, it enough to and, know and, that and, that English people are or British people generally are extremely tribal and peer-oriented and it took a long time for me to work at like much more so I think than in North America where there was this the nuclear family is really important to middle class and upper middle class people in a way that social class is really important to upper middle class British people. I mean, that's why boarding school is not like a normal thing in Canada. It's very strange thing that only a very tiny portion of the population does. But it took me a while to work out in Britain, making your friends at a school age is incredibly important to people. People are really loyal. I'm talking about upper middle class people. And so that decision around age 11 of where to send your child to secondary school becomes like this really monumental thing, like these are the friends that you're going to make. Because people I know, I mean, I know upper middle class people in Britain who they still go away on these like group holidays with people they've known since they were 12. It's like a very, you know, if Mm. you go to one of those schools, like that's it. That's your, that's your gang. James, is that your experience?
3: Well, to a to a degree, I, I mean, you know, I, I've yeah, probably I have made f- friends through through school, but it wasn't it wasn't really my motivation. I tell you, I tell you one other thing I haven't mentioned. One of the, another, particularly in my son's case, boy got a got a bursary to Eton. And one of the things I really enjoy, and I will always enjoy about sending a child to Eton, is it's such a fantastic trolling exercise. <laughs> it really annoys all the kind of people that you'd want to annoy. It, it, it's a kind of in your face. Yeah, I don't care about your ghastly socialist values. But I'm, <laughs> I'm inserting my, my boy into, the, into the, the ranks of the posh and, and screw you. And um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll always, always enjoy that. But stuff like, you do get value added. Like, last, last summer, Boy went on this walk from Siena to Rome, something like 200 miles, and, and fell in love with the, with the art, art at Rome. Uh, I, I'm i not sure whether he'd necessarily have had those opportunities if he'd, if he'd just been a, a bog-standard comp.
0: And James, what is the craziest thing you would do or have done in order to get your children into the right school?
3: Oh God! Well, I su- I suppose that the church thing is an obvious one. I, I mean, if, if if you think it's a crazy thing, we're not going to church. But, but we, we live in a, a in a pretty secular age, don't we? So I think think you you do stick out slightly doing that. I would I would have done anything. I would frankly have. Given the false address in in order to get into the catchment area of of a school. I I didn't but I I would have done and I would have felt absolutely zero qualms because it's your kids. What could be more important than your kids? You do not want your your kids to have a a bad future even if, as Leah says, schools hardly make any difference at all. You want to give them whatever advantage you can and that seems to be fair.
0: Leah, what do you say to your friends who are doing these crazy things, who are taking sabbaticals? I mean, there must come a point where they're telling you all these ridiculous commitments they're making far and above anything they're doing for their own careers, for instance, and you say,
4: why are you doing this? Middle class British people are just cognitively biased in favour of this idea that education matters, even when, as James said, even when he knows it. doesn't matter that much you still have to do anything because it's just the way the culture operates so you can't really argue with people you can say well actually statistics show it doesn't matter statistics show that you know if you send your kid to a state secondary school they actually have a better chance if they're from a middle class background of getting into Oxford or Cambridge, but people will still—they just can't be divested uh, from yeah, the notion. Oh yeah, actually,
3: Leah, can I pick you up on that one? That's why Oxford and Cambridge is so absolute rubbish now. <laughs> They've become so obsessed with with their war to, to create equality. They're about social engineering, not not quality anymore. So there's there's loads and loads of really bright public school kids who really should be at Oxford and Cambridge right now and aren't getting in there. And actually, I say to those kids. You're better off off out of those places anyway. They are just such hotbeds of SJW poor kids. values yeah. now.
4: But I also just think that I, an important point to be made is that I think what it really is about is tribalism and social exclusion. And if that's what you are, if you're a snob, then just admit you're a snob. It's fine. You know, I don't. I don't care. There are snobs in the world, but that's really what it's about. It's about saying I don't want my kids to go to school with poor kids that don't look like them.
0: Fine. Leah and James, thanks very much. And that's all for this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We would love to hear from you. And do pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as Jacob Rees-Mogg's diary, Robert Toombs on the nation state and more. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.